The last nine months has seen a vicious war of attrition unfold in towns like Uglidar, Solidar and Bakhmut. But this should not be interpreted as a stalemate, as those struggles seem to have degraded the quantity of functional Russian equipment and depleted their fighting potential. Will Ukraine's counteroffensive finally bring an end to Russia's genocidal and pointless war? Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like and subscribe to help new people find our fantastic speakers. And of course, if you enjoy the content, please do support us and consider becoming a patron. Maria Druska works in Ukraine's defense sector and shares her informed and pointed thoughts on defense policy and foreign affairs through her popular accounts on Twitter and YouTube. Her updates on the Russo-Ukrainian war also have a dedicated audience, uh, have a dedicated audience, which are attracted also to her humor and sarcasm. Maria also describes herself as a professional Vatnik basher. Maria, welcome to the channel. Thank you so much, Jonathan, and such a flattering introduction. And uh, thank you for having me on your channel. And if if I may, uh, I want to thank you for all your work that you do, because I've been following uh, your interviews, your work for a while. And I'm fascinated of the prominent speakers that you invite, that you cover such a broad uh, range of topics uh, and it is very important because you know uh, you I I'm sure your audience is also with different interests they can all find the topics that they are interested in on your channel so it's fantastic and uh, I'm very happy to be here with you today. Well I'm very very flattered and it's interesting that we sort of mentioned your humor and we mentioned Twitter and I think you know, whereas many of the topics on this channel are, you know, pretty serious and, uh, you know, we try and lighten them where we can. They are, however, pretty heavy topics. Nonetheless, on Twitter, you know, I have a slightly different persona, as I think you do as well. And that is, of course, using humour to to fight this uh, struggle and to resist Russian disinformation. And that's incredibly important, isn't it? Mocking them and, and you know, using humour as a weapon. Absolutely. Well, that's what Ukrainians uh, are now, including other stuff that we are famous for. That's what we are famous for now as well, for our sense of humor. And, you know, uh, it is slightly different personality. It's a part of my personality. But on Twitter, of course, I allow myself, you know, to uh, joke and uh, use dark humor and sarcasm as well. And that's basically how I started my Twitter. If I um, if you let me mention a few words uh, about that, because when the war just started, of course, it was very difficult psychologically and uh, we couldn't understand, including myself, what was going on. And uh, that's basically how I started uh, Twitter. And it is in English to, uh, of course, let our foreign partners, foreign supporters, uh, support us more and understand what is actually going on. But then, uh, you know, to make some psychological pressure less for myself even, I started uh, to use uh, some humor and uh, general jokes. I'm sure my early uh, followers remember about uh, jokes about dead generals in Kherson trenches or something because 
uh, it was not a joke actually they were there uh, quite dead but uh, yeah so it is very important you know not to lose sense of reality and somehow keep sane to ourselves and the humor of course is one way to do it and of course you know i mean we'll try to mention uh, russia as little as possible but the sheer incompetence and absurdity now we know there's also horrific brutality which is in no way you know humorous but sometimes the sheer incompetence uh, and pointlessness of their war I mean that that in itself does uh, generate a huge amount of of humor. Um, also, fortunately, uh, it means that many of their campaigns have not been successful. Uh, you know, the campaign to take Kiev, the campaign to conquer Kharkiv was unsuccessful, and to hold Kherson. I mean, it's a litany of failure. Some of them absolutely absurd. Absolutely. And uh, of course, uh, I hope we will uh, speak about it later. And I will mention it later about uh, basically why Putin, well, the part of why he behaves like he does, because he has not fully been informed even what was going on, because all his generals and all his uh, advisors, let's say, they're just scared, uh, have always been and scared even now to tell him the truth of these um, hilarious failing failures, you know, and uh, yes, of course, we do not, um, we should not underestimate the enemy. However, all these memes and all these funny sketches come from the reality, from the truth. So, and they should be pointed out as such, of course. I don't know if you've seen the movie uh, Death of Stalin. Uh, there's a comedy movie that a British director made about something we think Stalin, how's that going to be funny? But he, he made a movie about the last days of Stalin and all of the you know, um, senior characters of the Politburo who are around. And of course, he, in interviews, actually, everyone thinks it's exaggerated. He actually said he had to tone it down because reality was so absurd that it would be completely unbelievable. But it is an, the most grotesque and hilarious movie. I mean, I have to say, I'm looking forward to the movie in a few years, The Death of, of, of Putin, because that also is going to be an absolute clown show, I think, with Absolutely. with distance, we will be able to laugh at his demise. Absolutely. I think Netflix uh, has already been working on some kind of series. And of course, I'm sure that um, movie industry will just explode after uh, after Ukraine win the war. So that's winning the war first. Yeah. And then uh, I'm sure that we will all be visiting cinemas and enjoy uh, different kinds of uh, movies starting from action dramas and finishing of course comedies that's gonna be amazing well let's turn to something more serious because this idea of victory i think it's something which most of the speakers on this channel share a strong confidence of total ukrainian victory but the question is when that happens and at what cost um and I think there's a serious point here, which is, could victory come sooner? Could it have come sooner even before now if sanctions had been more effective? And in a minute, we'll also turn to the idea if more um, effective weapons had been supplied sooner. 
Absolutely. So uh, if, if I may, uh, thank you for that you raised a very important um, issue, sanctions. You know, I am not, I just want to say that I'm not a sanction expert. Uh, however, I've done research on that because this topic was also interested to me as well. And I realized that many uh, of, uh, well, Ukrainians as well, but as well as our foreign uh, friends, uh, my friends, uh, partners, they uh, do not uh, fully understand uh, what sanctions are and how they work. Because, you know, in terms of war, we use what attracts uh, more is uh, basically the practical result that we see on the spot, for example, what which is, for example, weapons, usage of weapons, right? So we use let's say high mass and we see exactly the result of usage of that at the sport however sanctions works a little bit different different and then people started like to question themselves so do we actually need them or you just give us like give ukraine more weapons or if it's ukrainian like you know sanctions fine but like let's concentrate on the weapons and equipments so uh i would like to start uh for example to those who uh, we're not familiar with this. Uh, what basically Russia under the sanctions is. And it is very interesting to know that Russia now is the most sanctioned country in the world. And uh, since the full-scale uh, invasion uh, in Ukraine started, uh, Russia has become the subject to more than 13,000 restrictions, which is uh, more than to combine Iran Cuba and North Korea together. And uh, well, a few words, what was Russia before, before the war? Uh, we know that even with its state-controlled economic structure, Russia still prioritized, of course, technological advancement. They wanted, you know, to release themselves uh, from the, uh, like, uh, reliance on uh, foil uh, fuel experts and let's say very uh, unrestricted flow of capital they had before. However, now after the war policies has been changed uh, uh, completely. Now they uh, implemented control of the capital movement. They classified countries as friendly countries, allies and enemies or unfriendly countries, right? They started using Chinese yuan more during their transactions. Uh, they increase, of course, the military spending. And, you know, everyone hoped that Russian Federation would uh, would it would force them to change their behavior, to um, get scared of sanctions. But unfortunately, reality did not meet expectations, right? And uh, there are very important, of course, majority of sanctions. Um, they are limit export of Russia gas and coal and, coal, and um, also restrictions on sale, luxury goods, professional services, uh, access to uh, funds of IMF, of World, uh, World uh, Bank, 
and uh, swift payment system right for the russians and um i think uh, now it's about 300 billion uh, dollars of russian assets that have been frozen right so um let me also mention that um what what paradox is because it is really very interesting um to to point out that sanctions have strengthened actually russia in the short-term perspective uh, while you know uh, world economy european economy got some shock uh, of the sanctions as well because of course everything is connected they had a, a big um, uh, you know trade uh, and uh, other economical um uh, movement with 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 russian together so while they are kind of getting over of shock russia was strengthening itself uh inside but it is in sh short-term perspective however in mid-term and that's what people do not see now and they are questioning kind of uh importance of sanctions but in mid and long term it is very important and uh in mid and long term, sanctions will be devastating for Russian economy. And, uh, you know, now they have ability to continue the war. However, they do not have ability for advancements as they did in the beginning of the full scale invasion, right? So the most important is uh, to strengthen sanctions, to tighten them uh, on different levels. And, uh, well, if I may also uh, mention uh, how armed expert uh, influence uh, on, on Russia as well, because of course it's also uh, generating of capital and uh, um, if to speak about uh, you know arms um, export after uh, after our foreign uh, partners let's say Russia's potential clients seeing the performance of Russian weapons uh, on the Ukrainian uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine they kind of started to re-evaluate re uh, their contracts, agreements. So, for example, I uh, read that uh, India has uh, uh, permanently um, permanently uh, terminated terminated the contract for um, me uh, helicopters, and then for car thirty one K thirty one helicopter as well and then uh, followed by uh, Philippines who also um, terminated the purchase of uh, transport helicopters and uh, yeah this this all influence of course of uh, working capital let's say and they and... still have equipment though don't they so the Indian army and others around the world and certain governments in the Middle East they will still have quite a large stock of Russian equipment from previous purchases so they will need parts and supplies. How are they able to get those um, with the sanctions regime in place? And of course, many of these components require high technology elements to them, which Russia is now finding it difficult to import. So how does this servicing of this sort of legacy equipment uh, work? Uh, of course, yes, those countries, speaking about them, they have a big stocks of um, of um, Soviet equipment and 
um, well, they will have difficulties, let's say, because of course Russia does not have enough uh, to maintain and uh, to uh, change uh, their spare parts and other components themselves, right? Not even we're talking, not even about uh, export of them. Uh, however, you mentioned components, and this is also very interesting because in terms of work, even we, uh, like I faced uh, with this issue as well. Um, and I would like to mention that um, like Russian enterprises now, they have a big stock of uh, foreign uh, uh, imported components. However, sooner or later, the stocks will run out, right? And uh, we could think, for example, that Russia would uh, relocate uh, their uh, market to some other countries, for example, like China or India. But first of all, they would uh, face with uh, poor quality and secondly that those countries will, would be put in the risk themselves to be banned by by the US and by uh, European countries right so uh, the one of the let's say very few options how Russia can get the the components for for uh, weapons um, and equipment is contraband. Uh, and they've been doing this since 2014 and uh, through third countries. However, also it's uh, important to mention that now even this way is more difficult than it was before because, you know, the US and EU um, has uh, increased uh, uh, control over this to third countries. But our uh, institutions that make uh, research from of, of the uh, shutdown drones and weapons etc well it's, it's this information has been public that uh, a lot of components are still uh, of foreign uh, origin from the countries of uh, NATO and yeah this is something that also need to be more tighten and more control, of course. And to, to wrap up, if, if I may, to wrap up the sanctions um, topic, because we will not get deep into that. And as well as, uh, you know, I'm, it's not my uh, area of, um, of expertise, uh, but it is important to mention missiles, because we all know, you know, uh, our audience, know here that uh, last two months, let's say uh, beginning of uh, May, I think it started to intensify missiles attacks, right? And um, it is important to notice because uh, to, to mention this, because before, um, you know, analysts were like, uh, Russia will run out of missiles soon because we remember all this mass missiles attack during the winter when they were targeting our um, critical infrastructure, right? They wanted to freeze us, uh, they wanted to leave us without the light, and uh, you know, there was a mass missile attack like 70, sometimes even 100. So, of course, everyone were hoping that missiles will finish soon. and. Uh, and however, we, we, we did have this few months of, uh, let's say, uh, pause uh, of this big scale, in, um, big scale attacks. However, they renewed um, as well, uh, again. Speaking about uh, Kinjals. So 
uh, Russia uh, used six of them uh, on uh, in the beginning of May when they attacked uh, Kiev. And in the whole, uh, during the whole like what 15 months, they used 20 kinjals only, well, only, let's say it's still a lot, but 20 kinjals over the course of the year and six they used in May, right? Uh, so, um, According to our military intelligence, Sugur, I think in stock there are like they said it is about 50 or, or even less uh, left. They also deliver caliber cruise missiles a uh, few times uh, per month to Crimea. Um, but Russia now apparently can uh, produce itself about 25 calibers per month, about only two kinjals per month. Well, Two, it's still a lot, but uh, still, right? And uh, ballistic missiles to Iskander, I think around uh, five as, as, as far as I remember. And we see that Russia is facing issue like problems and difficulties with producing kinjals. They still do, but not a lot. But the main thing is that, uh, speaking about them, 130 components for kinjals are of um, the origin and manufacture of the United States. So, of course, due to sanctions again, uh, they have now difficulties to manufacture them. So the only way, let's say, to get these components is what I've mentioned before through smuggling. That still, however, is a higher production rate than we perhaps estimated or thought Russia was capable of. Um, and possibly their stocks of these missiles were greater than perhaps our estimates. Because is it fair to say that in some ways the sanctions have failed because they were intended to do a number of things? They were intended to stop the Russian war machine, to persuade Russia that this aggression needs to stop. Neither of those have happened. And the unspoken aim was to destabilize uh, the Russian regime to the point where the so-called elites would push for the war to end because it's clearly against their interests. Uh, you know, they're making less money. Their money abroad has been, uh, uh, you know, frozen. Their yachts have been taken. They can't go to their villas in Italy. We thought this would have some kind of impact. But I think the point you made earlier is incredibly interesting. Um, and I've heard, I think it was uh, Michael Naki um, and, and others who are on Channel 24 uh, talking about this. Um, Putin, in the short term, seems to have actually consolidated his grip on power. Those who are likely to oppose him, he's let them leave, you know, more than a million. The estimate is now between one and three million um, Russians who would have been less likely to, uh, you know, be turbid patriots have left the country. There's sweeping repression internally. But also there's a segment of the population that is, you know, completely, you know, wants to accelerate the war. He seems for the moment to have created a, a more stable regime. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be stable in the mid to long term. But is it fair to say sanctions have not really achieved their objectives? Well, let's say a uh, good question. Let's say yes and no. Uh, so, uh, as I mentioned, of course, uh, Russia in the short term, uh, they uh, strengthen themselves. Speaking about uh, personnel uh, reserves, 
it is a big issue. So th the sanctions that uh, were imposed, uh, it uh, like now and even like in the beginning, maybe like half a year, they felt after the beginning of the war, they felt it more uh, that um, personnel shortage all these uh, let's say uh, they faced with so-called like drain drain um, brains uh, drain of brains uh, began began and it is a big issue because you know all smart people let's say from young people from IT technologies right uh, in the industrial complex let's say people feel this and uh, they just uh, you know leave leave the country so it is a very big issue and speaking about elites that you've mentioned as well um well this is uh, yeah now regarding uh personal individual sanctions because actually the number the big number of sanctions they meant uh, to be imposed on individuals who can uh, neither uh, visit for example western uh, countries or nor gain access to their property and wealth that they store there because we all know of course that uh, russian elites oligarchs big businessmen first of all they don't keep their uh, money uh, most of them most of money inside uh, russia right and like they have um their parallel life somewhere in Europe, in Italy or Spain. They have families living in London. Kids are uh, going to school, to elite schools in the UK, in the US, all over the Europe, you know. So the, the question was uh, always that these sanctions, whether they, uh, whether they are used, it's to the way to punish these people to be close to regime, right? Or the regime that's responsible for aggression and for the war, or uh, they are they were imposed to make these people put pressure on this uh, regime, because you know when uh, you feel inconvenience and uh, you know you have uncomfortable lifestyle, you feel some unpleasantness, then sooner or later they will push this regime and people and demand to kind of moving to the end of the war. So we're still, uh, we're still waiting for, again, like sanctions slash patience, you know, it's not like weapons, uh, like storm shadow that you just launch it and you have 100% of effectiveness. So sanctions uh, means patience and uh, it will work more in medium and long-term perspective. Well, mentioning Storm Shadow, there are an incredible array of weapons being supplied now. And even the anti-aircraft uh, missiles are being topped up, fortunately, because we now see that Russia is trying to sort of deplete your anti-missile um, you know, defences. These things are, are coming through, but it's taken a long, long time. You know, it took a huge campaign, which I know you were very vocal about, with freeing the leopards, getting the tanks over. That took six months to, to make that happen. Um, we're now in the fight to get F-16s. Again, it's taken months and months of pointing out why these are necessary, um, why they're an absolutely essential part of a combined arms approach. 
which is the only way that's going to comprehensively defeat Russia. These things have not come in the quantities that's required. They have not come soon enough. It's taken a huge amount of effort to get them. And I have to pose the difficult question that even though we're confident of a Ukrainian victory, could that victory have come a lot sooner if the West had not dithered and dragged its feet? And how many Ukrainian lives have, you know, could have been saved if actually those weapons arrived sooner? Well, this is the question, of course, uh, you know, uh, more probably philosophical, I would say, because we would, first of all, we would never know. Second is, uh, I want to emphasize that we all are very grateful uh, to our Western partners, because it's not a secret that we now uh, depend on uh, Western support on different levels, right? Social level, um, the uh, like Ukrainian state budget, of course, including weapons and uh, ammunition. So speaking about now, I don't think that we need to, um, you know, discuss what could be if it could happen earlier. However, what we need to do and our partners need to do is to learn lessons from what happened in the past and try to avoid uh, these mistakes. Mistakes or, you know, not mistakes, uh, because I'm pretty sure that it was those moments, let's say, of course, for me as a Ukrainian, for Ukrainian people, we would want to have F-16s, you know, after two months of the starting uh, full-scale invasion. But uh, looking into the uh, terms of how it was, uh, on my opinion, it most of the deliveries and most of the packages that were issued uh, by our foreign partners, they were uh, necessary in time. You know, it was a time when we needed these javelins and loves and uh, um, we were we were uh, given uh, them. Then it was a time when we needed Bayraktars, right? We were provided with Bayraktars. Of course, when it in terms of then, you know, armored vehicles, etc. Then when it came a time to, you know, speak about counteroffensive. Mm, I don't think that we could start it earlier, right? Because first of all, there were a lot of uh, um, a lot of points like when we couldn't, for example, even even the weather. Let's take into consideration, right? Because everyone would think that it could be start it could start in May or April. However, we saw that the weather was not uh, suitable for that and for tanks and heavy uh, heavy uh, vehicles to pass. Right. So speaking about uh, would it be, you know, better to get Leopards delivered, important was, first of all, the political decisions. Right. So with this, probably it could be done faster. Right. However, our partners uh, do great job, especially now and the last few months uh, to deliver all weapons and equipments 
as fast as possible and like it it is very fast you know so i don't think that we need to discuss now like psych of uh, hypothetical theories we need to um bring these issues learn lessons and uh, you know um do whatever is more effective now speaking about f16s right we have uh, now political um political agreement, political decisions on providing F-16s. It is very important. Our pilots are going to start soon. They haven't, but they've been, it's been discussing. They, they are starting their um, training soon. So uh, I think even, well, speaking about Germany, for example, need to take you know into consideration of course their historical background and this what happened with leopards and we need to remember their history we need to remember that people did not get over let's say uh the past which was not very long time ago it's we think that it was long time ago right but it was not really so it's still like in there they were growing up with these uh, values right and now it's just who would have thought that just almost behind the door it would be kind of vice versa and it was a shock, of course, uh, for I mean, for for citizens, for for regular people. So to do what like the decisions that have been made in Germany, let's say, starting even with personal, um, like um, regular people to you know change their perspective, change their mind, and thus give a support to the government to make these decisions. It is very important, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, Chancellor Schultz um, made a very fiery speech recently where peace activists, and uh, I think we both know what the euphemism for peace activists actually means, um, you know, they push for a peace deal, they push for negotiation, they push essentially what is a Kremlin narrative in the guise of you know, pacifism, and Schultz was very, very harsh with them, I think rightly so. Um so there's two topics that kind of emerge from that idea. Um, one, of course, is what would a an acceptable peace deal look like? I mean, I'm not convinced that any kind of peace deal is possible at the moment uh, or even for some time. Um, but clearly there are a number of peace deals being pushed around uh, by China and, of course, the African delegation this week uh, that came to uh, Kiev. So there's, there's that nature of the peace deal. But also if you take Schultz's quite sort of passionate uh, statements in defense of Ukraine, the other question is, is it really starting to sink in now amongst Western politicians how much of a threat Russia actually is and how far it has degraded civilizationally uh, back towards, you know, an extreme tyranny, almost, I would say, to um, state barbarism? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, um, as you said, uh, peace rally or... It was, I think, pro as far as I remember, very pro-Russian, uh, pro-Russian uh, rally, right? So probably it also influenced on Cancer uh, Scholz uh, for his uh, to give that passion, uh, passionate speech. However, um, I do believe, and I'm very convinced, even that uh, Europe now starting to 
you know, to not even understand it, but slowly changes uh, narratives and their policies. Because in Europe's history, uh, you know, not long time ago, we had many imperial powers. However, now we don't have that. But the Russian Empire still, uh, you know, um, have this, um, how to say, phantom pain uh, of the time when once Russian Empire was great. So they still have these imperial ambitions and this what Europe starting uh, to understand or not starting but like understand now that this is a threat that Europe um, have to their peace and security, you know, and uh, Russia is trying simply to change the world order and, and, and peace order. So of course, Europe does not like, cannot let this happen, right? And uh, there are many threats, not like, I'm not even speaking about, let's say our uh, neighbors like Poland or Baltic states that they understood, let's say, better than other countries the threat that Russia uh, possessed to them, right? But even speaking about different, like other threats, strike, like we don't need to go far. Uh, latest strike on on them, right? It is and and strikes on the energy and um, um, critical infrastructure in winter it's all it all cause and could cause even nuclear catastrophe because we see zaporizhia uh, nuclear power plant right what was they were doing with chernobyl so in general this full-scale invasion into ukraine brings not only threat to the uh, let's say neighbor countries like baltics like uh Poland, because of Belarus, of course, and other, but it's just a huge changes to all the system of European world order. So um, I think we are moving in the right uh, directions and speaking, I think, uh, speaking well uh, about Germany, you mentioned, I think they even uh, now uh, considering to supply of fighter jets to Ukraine. Uh, so if it is what uh, we've talked uh, before, mm. it is a big, it is a big, you know, move for them. So it is very obvious that um, we are moving to the right direction. Europe moving to the right direction. NATO countries moving. To and the, the Swedish ones, I think it's the Gripen fighters are now potentially going to come to Ukraine as well. So um, that's an extraordinary change. And this idea of Russia acting as a terrorist state. We see that in bombing of apartment buildings. We see it in attacks of the energy infrastructure. But probably the biggest example recently is the Kohovka Dam. But the destruction of the dam hasn't got, I think, nearly enough attention in the media. And the full implications of it, I don't think, have been understood because this is a, an incredible act of barbarism, ecocide, terrorism. Well, yeah, it is. And uh, I've made... Um like when it happened i made quite a few uh, videos uh, on uh, my youtube on that and i will not repeat them 
if people want to, you know, I mean, I'm sure everyone uh, researched and heard uh, what uh, causes and consequences would bring it. And uh, I've explained it also very clear. However, speaking about that, it's not enough. I honestly, I, on my opinion, it's not enough attention that European uh, like EU and uh, other countries give to this uh, to this catastrophe you know I honestly and I don't understand why I don't understand how people cannot see I mean there are a lot of analysts experts in these areas as well so what there are not enough papers published so let's you know push to this just do the research it's a huge ecological catastrophe and I'm not even talking about the catastrophe and and the um, grief for Ukrainian people, you know, because it's just war, people are dying, but then you have this when you were just liberated, you know, but from the different catastrophe, I mean, the same source of, of, of this cause, however, different catastrophe happened, and they lost everything again. And uh, the people forget that uh, Zaporizhia, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is just there, you know, and there are threats uh, to uh, um, blow it, to mine it, and uh, I don't know which, uh, we need to check which uh, uh, results um, uh, the the head of the uh, Grossi just visited Zaporizhia, I think, uh, nuclear power plant, as well as he is going or went over the. I haven't followed to the, to Moscow, right? So, it it is just a huge catastrophe. I I'm very sad, honestly, that uh, not enough attention was paid. Um, to this recently and of course we talk about uh, international um, NGOs not NGOs or international organizations like uh, UN like uh, well the Red Cross unfortunately lost its credibility a long time ago in Ukraine however um, not enough reaction from the UN it also upsets us yes absolutely and rightly so well let's turn to this idea of a peace deal because that word comes up a lot um, whenever there seems to be a sort of quiet period on the front. You hear the voices, uh, the clamour for a peace deal get louder and louder. But I think there are voices on the other side. And I think in particular, um, um, Anders Puck Nielsen did a good video on that recently. Uh, Vlad Vexler has mentioned this. We also have many commentators on Ukrainian media. Um, again, people like Michael Nack and others talk about this, and that is that a peace deal is not possible as long as Putin is in charge. One, he seems to have no understanding of what's really going on. He has no inclination to sign a realistic peace deal. Um, no one, I think, believes he would adhere to the terms of any peace deal. Um, and at this point, it is almost distasteful, well, it's entirely distasteful to actually sign any kind of document with a genocidal dictator. So I don't know what your thoughts are on what peace will eventually look like, but is that going to have to wait for Putin's demise before that's a realistic possibility? Uh, well, both sides, they uh, said that now it is no room for negotiations and it's not possible negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. 
that's amazing, of course, that everyone wants to be involved, wants to, you know, give uh, give us a hand. Of course, everyone has uh, their own interests, and by everyone, I mean these uh, prominent uh, countries that offered us their kind help, as uh, China and uh, what Brazil, I think, even uh, South Africa, other African countries, right? Uh, so, um, however, we, as you know, um, part of the war, the one that um, fighting this war and the ones whose territories uh, have been illegally annexed by the aggressor, I think we have, let's say, priority right to decide uh, what is, what would, uh, let's say, peace uh, would be for us and what is the winning of the war would be for us. So Ukraine is very straightforward with that. Our president makes a very clear statement that for us uh, uh, it is important to get to the borders uh, of Ukraine of 1991, which is includes Donbass and Crimea, right? However, what we see now is that uh, NATO, let's say, the European country, Western world, they have not decided to themselves what would be this peace deal or what would be the victory of Ukraine or the loss of Russia, right? And this is comes, we come to the point of um, security guarantees. Um, Western countries have not decided what uh, they can, which security guarantees they can provide us. And there is now a problem with basically finalizing. So if we don't have an aim, like Ukraine is very clear, we have one aim, to liberate territories. However, it's also within the Western countries' interest to make sure that Russia will not freeze this conflict and I'm sorry to remind, but we all remember 2014 and illegal occupation of Crimea and how that after that, like, I don't, I'm not going to blame anyone. Uh, however, uh, you know, uh, the not strong enough reaction of the Western world, let's say, was a part what led to today's reality. So after 2014, people still were inviting Putin to the table, shaking his hands, pouring the tea, uh, speaking about, you know, life and buying the, his cheap gas. Um, that's not happening now, okay? Uh, that's uh, at least a good. However, they need to decide which security guarantees uh, they can provide. For Ukraine, of course, security guarantees would be after, let's say, Ukraine's victory, after some time. Of course, I'm not saying we don't need to meet requirements. We do need to meet uh, requirements to be a NATO member. And President Biden mentioned this recently as well, that Ukraine needs to meet uh, requirements and we want to meet all requirements. However, accepting Ukraine to NATO would be a perfect security guarantee, let's say. So until then, frozen conflict, no one needs a frozen conflict, right? We all remember what was up to 2014, and it was, I mean, we still have war on the East, 
uh, of Ukraine. However, it kind of, you know, uh, was like frozen or they wanted to freeze it, right? We didn't, we, like no one helped us to make straight moves to liberation of the Donbass. So we need to avoid this. Uh, because otherwise Russia will, and we see this in terms of the history, the big bear, I even remember is in my mind, this meme, I don't know if you see that like before, the, the picture and the four small pictures inside where the bear, big bear, uh, like attacking, then it was defeated, and then it was like regrouping or healing, and then in 30 years, or maybe this time it would be more or less, um, regrouping, uh, reinforcing, and attacking again, right? So no one wants their, our children to fight the same wars that we are fighting now. So there are, that's what West needs to, to, to decide for themselves and for us. And the other side of that, I think, is, and, you know, Ukraine is in no way responsible for Russia's political system and its mess. However, a frozen conflict would likely keep the current group of criminals in charge of the Kremlin. It would have, uh, you know, what you would have is uh, an aggressive neighbor with a ruthless regime, a regime that are partly dependent on, you know, Zed patriots, on aggression, on imperialist values. Nothing would change in, in that instance. Um, and that sort of reckoning uh, or realization of their actions wouldn't happen. Uh, Russia could spin a frozen conflict as a victory and the regime could survive. Um, whereas a resounding defeat, like the one that Russia experienced in 1905 against Japan and many others, these caused huge systemic changes uh, in Russia. Um, and I think in this instance as well, it's only through a massive defeat we're likely to see any change at all. Um, now, we don't know what direction that would change would be. We don't know whether Russia could become uh, a more civilized country, um, you know, a more European rule of law leaning country, or whether it could could get, uh, you could go in the other direction and continue its civilizational decline. We don't know that. But what we do know is that a defeat would at least you know, uh, prompt some kind of changes. And Ukraine needs, you know, Russia's not going to go away, unfortunately. Um, Ukraine either needs to be able to defend itself as part of the NATO alliance, um, or uh, in future, uh, ideally, have Russia that uh, is is uh, a better neighbour, dare I say it. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I keep saying that... Uh... If uh, Putin die, uh, dies uh, tomorrow, which uh, would be not a bad thing, of course. However, it would not more likely uh, change the course, you know, because still uh, they have already uh, kind of successors for his position, right? And it's all, all even being said that he supposed or they prepared him to step, uh, step off the thrown uh in the beginning of this year and they already had someone like to replace him right so and which means that they would just continue this narrative they continue the war etc so um yes the regime what needs to be changed and putin's death 
would not i mean we could probably have some cocktails in the evening however for that however it would not change the big course of uh, of the event so the regime needs to be changed and that would would um, also help uh, you know, now what is going on in Russia, we also don't know what will be like in the further months because they also have the inner, they started having inner house chaos for, for uh, in, in their, let's say, family, inside the family. So we, we could just hope that it will develop, the events will develop in the advantage to us, to Ukraine. And really the last question, let's try and end on on a uh, a slightly more optimistic note or, or not. I mean, this is up to you and how to answer this. Um, but to how do you see the counteroffensive, which you know, it's clearly underway now? Um, how do you see the outcome of that? Uh, can the outcome only be positive? Um, I mean, it's going to come at a huge cost. But are you optimistic uh, for the success of the counteroffensive? Um I'm very optimistic in general, so <laughs> of course I am optimistic. Uh, however, well, we have a big hope for counteroffensive, as well as our European partners, well, NATO partners have a big uh, hope and expectations. This puts a little bit of pressure, of course, for our military leadership, for our soldiers, I mean, pressure like psychological pressure. However, uh, you know, we understand that uh, territories will not get we, we, we will not get territories back as soon as we would want to, you know, and speaking about because again, I will emphasize that we have paid enough uh, and too big, too high cause for anything but victory that is borders of 1991, including Crimea, you know, and this is, uh, it has a big support in the population, of course, as well as the military political leadership statement we all see. So taking territories back, would it be tough Yes. Would it be, you know, long and um, bloody battles and um, fights? Yes. We need to remember that, well, as, as Budanov, the head of um, intelligence, uh, said in the one of the interviews, I don't remember which one, that there are 400,000 Russian soldiers uh, who are fighting in Ukraine. And that including um, army as well as military companies that um, are here as well. So Russians do not have capabilities, resources, reserves to repeat these large scale offensive actions that they were doing in the beginning. Uh, all what they do, they were preparing, of course, for defense all the time. And regarding Crimea, a Ukraine victory again uh, is uh, in Crimea. I mean, is unlikely to happen um, in the nearest future, right? Because uh, and we all understand that. I mean, uh, it is of course easier to make the public statement, beautiful slogans, etc. And we all need that for you know psychological um, 
health, to keep up the spirit, however realistically we understand. And as much as I would like to go to the beach to Crimea during the velvet season, as we called it, in September, you know, and drink a cocktail there. However, it is unlikely we work out uh, this September, you know. So um, what we need is we need uh, long range weapons. We need other, uh, you know, uh, systems, air defense uh, to fasten this victory. However, well, this counteroffensive, this is, let's say, well, someone, maybe even uh, General Nivi, uh, pointed it that uh, this would be, let's say, one of the only, one of the chances, or maybe the only chances this year to have some results. So we would not be able to launch second counteroffensive after this, right? We have big expectations, we are positive, we know that it will be very difficult, it would cost us a lot of lives, unfortunately, uh, it is very sad, however, we do not have other choice, because we are fighting for our existence, and um, that's why we cannot be anything but positive on that. Well, Maria, I think for everyone watching this channel, you and all Ukrainians are a huge inspiration. Uh, and I think you've also helped us to realize how precious freedom is, that it doesn't, you know, freedom is not free. Um, and that all of us at some point may be called on to defend it in a way that we'd assumed, you know, is something for the history books, um, but is very much, you know, actually the future that we're all facing. And if we don't fight for it, then it's quite clear that it will disappear like the morning mist. Absolutely. And I do hope and I would invite you, of course, to join us all at, uh, you know, Crimea uh, party and cocktails when we have um, it after liberation. We are really looking forward for that. And I will invite all my friends, all supporters, you, Jonathan, as well. So we're, we are just sure that it will happen. It will happen sooner, hopefully. But um, we are hoping for the brighter future after the war as well. And thanks to your support, to support of the audience, to all our foreign friends, because without you, we would not be at the same position as we are now. Well, Maria, thank you so much. And Slava Ukraini. Hello and Slava.